Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast all about sharks in Venice. People are dying in Venice. Their corpses washing up with limbs missing and covered in huge bite marks. What could have done this? It can't be sharks. There are no sharks in Venice. Or are there? The man to find out is Danny Moran, who has come to Venice to search for his missing father. Could his father have been killed by sharks? Danny gets an unexpected answer to this question when a great sea beast attacks his boat. Danny can hardly believe his eyes. A shark? What is it doing in Venice? He'll have to avoid being eaten by the sharks if he wants to find out. Also, the mafia are after some treasure or something. Or at least they would be. If this were a pod adaptation of the 2008 horror film Sharks in Venice, starring Stephen Baldwin. Instead, it's just a podcast wherein two men talk about and review films. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me, the sexiest Baldwin brother, this side of the Grand Canal, Danny Moran. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Hello. On this week's episode, I review De Palma, the long-awaited sequel to Mrs. Brown's Boy's The Movie. A decidedly left-field entry into the franchise, where instead of the usual formula of a foul-mouthed matriarch berating her children, it's just an interview of an old man who claims to have made Scarface. The results are as informative as they are thrilling. Then we both review a film which immediately secures a slot in the top five farting boner magical corpse movies starring Daniel Radcliffe and Paul Dana released this year. Swiss Army Man. Plus, I bore Sam with some more tedious boasting about the London Film Festival and tell him which Mongolian eagle-hunting documentary is a must-see. We also investigate which old white male director has said something regrettable and which director has called another director a lying piece of shit. All of which should give me enough time to perform my latest impression. Shia LaBeouf discovering that Tashira Mifune has been living under his couch for the past year. No! Tashiro! What are you doing there? <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> no, not, not your best, maybe. I don't know, it's pretty good, actually. Sounds a lot like him. No, 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 no! That's what I thought it was going to be. We only did one no the first time. Films, 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 lots of films, 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 films. These good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, Lars von Trier films, old films, new films, some John Comfortable 
film chat has begun. So the only correspondence we have this week is going to be us talking because no one really uh no one gives a shit anymore. No one read into us. But that's okay. We have loads of stuff to talk about. Danny, you've been back at the London Film Festival, plugging away, watching movies constantly. Hobnobbing with the... With the stars. The Illuminati. And hobnobbing the with, with the unfamous. Yeah. How, how's, it, how's it been? Have you been enjoying your past week It's now? been good, yeah. Well, it officially kicked off yesterday. It's Thursday now. And so the bigger films are being played. So I saw The Handmaiden today, which is very good. Parching work, sort of period drama with um lesbians in it the director yeah. of old boy that's the one yeah it's a adaptation of an english book by that author who wrote tipping the velvet lesbian victorian stuff is her what she writes okay and he's taken it and transplanted it to korea and japan that's making cool it results. cooler yeah 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 it was cool to see a period drama which uh had a bit of pep to it you know what i mean like i just associate that with sort of merchant ivory sort of stuttering and longing glances but this one has like blood and tits in it so awesome wow fantastic yeah. Yeah. exactly uh what else what else have you seen i saw american honey which i'll be reviewing next week yeah well you're going to be seeing a trailer for that a lot in cinemas listeners i think yeah. i've seen it a few times already um, Saw that it's long yeah it's kind of being played up as like a big oscar-winning drama or you know it's sort of like this epic that will blow you away kind of thing well it is long <laughs> that's a fact going Epic for in it. length, yeah. And what else do I saw? I saw the Eagle Huntress about Mongolian eagle hunters. Pretty awesome. That's all I want to say about that. <laughs> well, what, uh, tell us about it. What is it? It's a documentary about the first female Mongolian eagle hunter. Yeah, famously, famously, they didn't have any women hunting yeah, it's, eagles. It's very much like a sort of female empowerment movie, and it's very glossy, but it's a really cool story. Uh, and there's something very badass about this 15-year-old girl with a 15-pound eagle. That's right. A girl wants to hunt eagles. That's right. <laughs> and all these, like, old, eagles. you know, members of the tribe, like, ooh, a lady can't be hunting with the eagles, but then, like, her eagle is, like, the best eagle. So it's pretty cool. It doesn't really make sense to uh, not let women hunt with eagles, you know? The yeah. eagles are doing the hunting. It's basically the story of Pitch Perfect, but with eagle hunting instead of acapella yeah so that's making it better that's pretty awesome yeah if anna kendrick just had like a huge eagle in that movie i mean it would have been a lot better i think agree <laughs> <laughs> is that is that your movie of the week you know the ones you've seen or what movie of the week? Your... handmaiden would probably be the best i've seen this week uh-huh. but i think uh moonlight is still the film to beat and uh what about the stinker the biggest stinker you've seen in the last seven days uh yeah the biggest stinker i've seen is uh, a secret scripture which is a very mawkish, failed Oscar Beatty movie. When I was watching it, I was like, the first 20 minutes, like, this is my mum's ideal movie. There's an old woman in a home. Something's happening in the past. It's set in the wall. There's a bit of misery, Catholicism, sort of Philomena meets a something else. Something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's like it's a bit like a sort of random generated uh, algorithm has produced this script, and they've made it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Rooney Mara's good in it. But everyone in it is an Irish, and it's San Island, and they're all doing the sort of, you know, whispery, I'm for, your hair is like the the wind on the, you know, like sort yeah, of yeah, weirdly yeah. lyrical dialogue. And uh, yeah, it's total pantyhose. It's that's supposed to be this big emotional roller coaster. Eric Banner's in it as well, doing an really? Irish accent. Really? That's weird. Yeah. Yeah. He's not just shouting about Australian football or something like you think he should be. <laughs> Cameron Diaz, fuck. <laughs> if only. 
Yeah, and I was a bit of a stinker. But it was the yeah. first of the day. It was good to, you know... I think it's okay if you watch a bad movie beginning of the day because it sort of eases you into the... Who's doing the best um, Irish accent? Um, Rooney Morris is pretty good. Um, Theo James is really bad in it. Well, his accent's bad. He's the sort of... He's a sort of YA actor. Who's he? You don't know Theo James? Is he just one of those square-jawed, kind of um, cool-haired, handsome yeah. young dudes? I think he's in the Insurgent movies. Okay. Yeah. Um, he plays a seen. priest. Aidan Turner is actually Irish, so his Irish accent is pretty good. Thank God. Yeah. They found someone Irish. I don't know why movie. he's not, like, the lead or whatever. Like, yeah. he's more famous than these other people in the cast. Yeah, that's pretty And strange. Jack Rayner as well is also Irish, so his Irish accent is good. It's top-notch. It's top-notch. <laughs> Um, cool. But yeah, I would avoid. Um, and so, like, next week, will you have seen even more major movies with even more famous people in it? Well, uh, I mean, it's going to be a packed out screen, I reckon, but maybe I'll see La La Land tomorrow. Oh, Hopefully, yeah. trying to know that. Gosling, Emma Stone. Gosling, Emma Stone. Back on screen, looking even more impossibly attractive than ever. Oh, I mean, I'm just going to have to control myself in that screening. I think everyone, everyone in the screening is going to be dangerously aroused. Dangerously aroused. Um, one of the big ones, Arrival, the screening on the, um, Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, Dennis yeah. Villeneuve, linguistics professors talk to aliens movie. Yeah, it looks uh, like uh, Close Encounters, but like, you know, sort of serious. Of, yeah, sort of, do, 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 it's just like circles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just weird, weird uh, symbols. Yeah, that Birth of a Nation as well, that's showing that. So yeah, a few big ones. Cool. Um, yeah. Look forward to hearing more about it. Are we going to uh, interview Henrik Carlson, by the way, the father of Magnus Carlson? Well, we can. We can potentially organise that. I don't know what we would say. Fun. Well, um, <laughs> there's this there's this documentary Magnus that's being shown at London Film Festival about the world chess champion Magnus Carlson, this young Norwegian, and uh, we might have the opportunity to interview his dad. <laughs> um. We probably would watch the film first. I think we'd have to watch the movie and then work out some questions. If we can't think of anything from the movie, I would just ask him chess questions. What's your favorite opening? You know, are you an E4 or D4 player? Yeah. Queen's like, Gambit. What's your Do favorite you Sicilian decline? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's going to be it's gonna be chess nerdy as hell. What I find um, funny is that, like, the BFI press accredited us and, like, validated film chat. Yeah. So... To, we're getting all these emails from like the other press people, so they think we're a genuine, Which, yeah. like, with a huge audience. So, yeah. like, potentially Henrik could be talking to people with listenership of just like you, me, and Dougal. <laughs> just waste twenty minutes of his time. Well, it's not a waste of his time. No, obviously, obviously it'd be a great interview. But I'm just, you know, I wonder if he's his perception of us is well, perhaps not. Well, that's why we'd have to make it, you know, extra good, you know, yeah, extra entertaining. Sure. We've got to build our whole podcast empire on the back of Henrik Carlson. Think how the listeners will stream in once they hear that we've got Henrik Carlson on the airwaves. It's true. I forgot about the bankability of Henrik Carlson. This is going to be a bombshell of a movie, and the thing that's really going to drive it is uh, Magnus's dad, Henrik. He seems to be a nice man by all accounts, and he's probably greatly you know, interesting when he talks. So, yeah, well, I don't know. That might happen. Just thought I'd, just thought I'd bring it up. Sure. Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. Diversity chat coming up now. We like to talk about um, the diversity. Issues. 
being the sort of woke podcast that we are. And there's a couple of uh, interlocking stories about this this week of white guys putting their foot in it. Tim Burton has got this movie coming out called Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. It's like some sort of um, whimsical X-Men-esque, X-Men meets Big Fish kind of story. Yeah. Um, really and, pushing himself. Yeah, definitely. In this one. <laughs> Way outside his uh, regular wheelhouse. And it has been noticed that the cast of the film is entirely white, except for the villain, who is black. And that uh, the sort of optics of that are unfortunate. Burton's response was as follows. He says, I remember back when I was a child watching The Brady Bunch, and they started to get all politically correct. Like, okay, let's have an Asian child and a black. I used to get more offended by that than just, I grew up watching exploitation movies, right? And I said, that's great. I didn't go like, okay, there should be more white people in these movies. So, uh, yeah, obviously people were, <laughs> you know, took issue with it. Yeah. It's bad to probably say a black. I don't think that sounds great. Um, and also, I don't know, it's just another tale of a uh, rich, old, white guy sounding defensive and tone deaf when talking about the lack of diversity in his Well, movies. yeah, he's confused diversity with tokenism there yeah. in the first place. And, like, the exploitation example is ridiculous because... As though but... his movie is the, <laughs> the white equivalent of exploitation. <laughs> this, this is his shaft. <laughs> this is what, you know... What shaft is to a black audience? It's a white exploitation movie. It's a white exploitation. It's weirdos with powers. Yeah, there's an irony in making a movie about outsiders where like the whole cast is white. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's like absolutely. trying to take the mantle of oppression onto yourself. It's like. Uh... Yeah, and also black exploitation films. They came about because there weren't black characters in mainstream films. Yeah, you know, that's the whole reason that whole subculture of cinema exists. You know, if like if the you know we were in an age where we just couldn't see a white actor in a mainstream film, then maybe <laughs> he would have a point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but exactly. unfortunately, that's just not true. Yeah. Not true, Tim. It is funny, though, because I just, because I, my vision of him and all his movies, all these, like, white, pale, skinny people, I don't think he's ever even drawn a black person, let alone, <laughs> yeah. you know, cast one. Yeah, it's true. How many black people are in his movies, his entire filmography? Well, isn't he, he's a sort of, um, like, Tory you know, rich guy moves in those circles, right? He doesn't seem Tim like... Tim Burton's a Tory. Well, they're friends with the Camerons. Helen and Bonham Carter and Tim Burton are friends with they're the They're friends Cam- with the Camerons, yeah. Fuck. They're like pals. Now so I'm just like looking at all those movies and trying to find the sort of underlying <laughs> Tory message of all of them. <laughs> yeah. But Devin Faraci of birthmoviesdeath.com, which we talk about sometimes, wrote an interesting piece about this. He's basically saying that Burton's comments are... Uh, stupid and he doesn't want to defend them but that the blame for um, the lack of diversity in this movie uh, should lie as much or more with the studio that funded it because as the sort of gatekeepers of major entertainment yeah they have a certain amount of responsibility to uh, be promoting diversity in their output yeah it's very true i think which i think is which i think is true i mean I don't know if, like, well, he's kind of saying that Tim Burton is the artist and he should be allowed to make whatever movie he wants to make. And it's like, well, you know, I think that's, you know, arguable. Um, but I think it is a good point to say that there's no reason why uh, the studio shouldn't be putting their foot down on this stuff a bit more. Because people aren't flocking to this movie because the random children, you never see, like, a kid from Hugo is in it or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, um, there's really no reason. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Tim. What happened to you, Tim? You used to be cool in the 90s. You're like Johnny Depp. You yeah. were cool in the 90s. They got weird you, together. They got bankable, and they started making these terrible... Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. 
They're probably two guys who would have been better if they'd never been successful. Mm. Money corrupted them. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but I just... Something that I can just... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Saying it might be. On this subject, another anti-woke commentator has popped up this week uh, in the form of Red Letter Media's Star Wars Episode Seven review. Which, yeah. if you're not familiar with Red Letter Media, they sort of came to prominence by doing these exhaustive, perhaps like five hours in total, like... Uh, breakdowns of why the prequels are terrible the star wars prequels the star wars prequels uh which are very good and really worth watching and they're fronted by this sort of stephen wright-esque insane old man called mr plinkett and his uh analysis of the story and the characters and the arcs are interspersed with very strange humor about how he's a murderer and stuff like this yeah he's a bit of a parody of a sort of basement dwelling internet like yeah exactly geek kind of thing and uh yeah he gave his review of uh, episode seven somewhat late you might say and uh well it's epically long i mean it must have taken an insane amount of work it's almost two hours long yeah and during which he questioned the diversity of the new star wars movies in a way which was uh, a very curious passage yes yeah there's a strange passage in the review where he discusses the diversity of the new cast and he's basically saying that the um the fact that this cast is much more diverse than in the original star wars movies is a good thing but it also felt like an intrusive, politically correct move that they did for its own sake or something like that. And he found it in some way annoying. And I don't, I don't know. I just, in fact, it seemed very, very odd and uh, not, not barely even constituting an argument, really. Because if you think that it's good to have a diverse cast, I don't know. How do you do it in such a way that you don't bother, you know, this guy who feels like it's tokenism or whatever? Like, what? Well, I think he kind of he kind of showed his true colors slightly. Yeah, it felt a like, bit like that. Yeah, it's like, hey, I'm all for it, but what's the point? But it doesn't matter. But you know, like it's like the sort of thing. It's like it doesn't bother me, but I keep on mentioning it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's like, he dedicates you know five or ten minutes to talking about it and showing up clips of how diverse everyone is, as though it really bothers him that the guys who are flying the spacecraft are you know there's now like an Asian woman and a you know. Yeah, like no, it's, whatever. It's like rather than just a series of white dudes. It's probably the one of the best things about the new Star Wars movies. Yeah, this outlook. You know, it's important that people who are not necessarily white can see themselves in films as heroes. Yeah, he says this weird thing about how uh, he always thought that the original Star Wars movies were uh, blind to the whole gender race thing or something like that, um, because regardless of your gender or race, you could still love Star Wars. And I think the the issue with this whole outlook is the idea that basically default setting for race and gender is white man. And that departing from that is like an active decision that you have to take. Whereas filling your movie with only white men, like that is an active decision that you make. You yeah. Know? The default should just be that the cast is diverse. Because that is... If 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 it was just an entirely meritocratic thing where you were just choosing whoever whoever was the best actor or whatever, then you would end up with a diverse cast because like you know yeah, white men are genetically the best actors. 
so um yeah it's this weird it's this weird blind spot where you can't see that like people have to make you know that's done on purpose listen old white guys your time is up you gotta move you know it's over you used to be cool red letter media what happened to you guys you know we're living in a new woke age get with the program there's something really funny about like praising something for being progressive in a way that's like a complaint i I really liked how diverse it is although it's kind of lame (laughs) would you make blade white huh (laughs) i don't know that's a sort of slippery slope sort of (laughs) and finally somebody has called somebody else a lying piece of shit this is huge john carpenter rudeness uh, legendary director of halloween uh song precinct 13 escape from new york the thing called rob zombie who did the remake of halloween a lying piece of shit because in a recent documentary called halloween the inside story rob zombie said that john carpenter was very cold to him during the making of halloween and john carpenter said that wasn't he was very what? nice what he was very nice he said he said make your own movie man this is yours now don't worry about me I was incredibly supportive. That's John Carpenter's direct quote. And he says, why that piece of shit lied, I don't know. He had no reason to. Why did he do it? Well, you do it, Rob. Yeah. Come on, Rob. It's sad, isn't it? These two greats of horror films bickering with each other. Two men whose interpersonal relations mean a lot to me. And I'd always imagine them hanging out, sharing a cold one, maybe, or a hot one, and just shooting the shit, you know? And now look at them. Their relationship is in ruins. It's like Brangelina all over again. Yeah, it is, actually. It's affecting me almost as much as the Brangelina thing. When I saw this beef, I was like, no. I think I actually out loud said that. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ask-cunchingly poor? How did Danny form the judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. So, Sam. Yes? Yes, I'm here. One of the 40 films I've watched recently is mm-hmm. De Palma, a documentary about Brian De Palma, directed by Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow. Noah Baumbach is the director of uh, We Are Young, Francis Ha, Mistress America, Squid and the Whale, films about miserable white people or about uh, Greta Gerwig being cheerful. Those yeah. are his two <laughs> modes. And Jake Paltrow is another indie director who directed films such as The Good Night and The Young Ones, which I hadn't seen. I looked at the posters and they looked like a similar... New York couples feuding kind of movies. Anyway, so the documentary is a straightforward interview with Brian De Palma and chronicles his entire career and focuses on the big milestone movies he made and is full of anecdotes about the individual films as well as musings about cinema in general and the movie business. And here is a clip of De Palma reminiscing about his fellow 70s auteur chums and the culture of New Hollywood in the early 70s. This was the whole Warner Brothers youth group. Schrader was out there. Schrader was a critic. He brought me the script of Taxi Driver. I didn't think it was commercial, but it was extraordinary. And I thought it was more to Marty's taste. That was basically our group. And we were all very supportive of each other and passing the scripts back and forth and looking at each other's movies. And what we did in our generation will never be duplicated. We were able to get into the studio system and use all that stuff in order to make some pretty incredible movies before the businessmen took over again. So this is a movie uh, made by cinephiles about a cinephile director for cinephiles. It's got a very um, specific audience in mind. Well, at least that's what I thought when I went in. And it's only about his films and very rarely touches on his personal life 
or anything outside the film work. And for me, that was a bit of an obstacle. And I liked it. I thought it was fine. And I'm definitely its target audience. But I felt it was a bit insubstantial. And I wasn't quite sure why they made it. And uh, so I went to the internet, as I want to do. I did a bit of research. And apparently it just started out as like a home movie while they were like testing some cameras and just got Brian around to share some anecdotes and it eventually evolved into an entire film but well, they were testing some cameras so they just got brian de palma around <laughs> what kind of crazy <laughs> lies these people lead these crazy cool new york filmmakers just get brian around yeah directors in uh, chairs testing cameras yeah and it reminded me of the woody allen documentary bob whitey made a few years ago and they share a similar problem in that i don't think the format of a feature-length documentary is suited to the content of the film and like filmmakers interviewing filmmakers has like been going on for ages and the sort of granddaddy version of this is um Truffaut interviewing Hitchcock which is this huge uh interview process which became this huge book and the book's great because it goes through film by film so you can just cherry pick the films you want to hear about and Truffaut's a really great interviewer and he's such a sort of fanboy that, he, that like you know zeroes in all these details and that's kind of what I would prefer because if you are a department novice and you watch this movie you will have all the major plot points and endings of his films ruined and if you're a department aficionado you'll probably have seen everything before and the result is a bit like watching interviews collated from a bunch of making ofs stitched together yeah so i'm not really sure what... there's not much of a sense of an overarching narrative to the way it's put together it? yeah exactly and i think going back to like because the film doesn't because the film only talks about department as a filmmaker and the most interesting bit of the documentary is when, a, in an offhand way, it just says he used to follow his dad, who is um, often having affairs, and photograph him having affairs and, like, confront him about it. And if you've seen any of De Palma's movies, like, voyeurism and sequences of that nature is in his films. And you're like, okay, now we're talking. This is the real crux of the issue. But he kind of, like, brushes right past it. And you're like... Where is an actual interviewer to zero in on that? Yeah. But I think they're, like, they're just two, they're just his, his mate. So they don't press him or grill him on anything. It sounds like a podcast. Yeah, than... it is. That's a, that's a good comparison. And a bit too enamored with him. And I don't know if they just cut out some of the darker moments because they want to make it like a light, breezy watch. But it's a bit odd in that the movie paints De Palma as this brilliant um, controller of, of the audience and be, be able to you know make you look one way and distract you and that. And he has sort of directed this film, I feel. Like, he quickly just took control of the interview, answers the question how he wants. Yeah. And Jake Paltrow and Noel Baumbach haven't really imprinted anything. Yeah. So, it's fine. It's basically like a good monograph, I think. You'll watch it and you'll want to watch some of his older movies. And there's some, you know, funny anecdotes. But I would just, like, wait till it comes on BBC4 in a month. I was just like, I didn't get it. It got, like, so many good reviews. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a brilliant, insightful, I'm gonna, you know get this genius mind talking about cinema and it's like well you know it's hard to do a dolly short once and it's like yeah no shit diploma yeah. boring doesn't sound that great to be honest sam and danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw they're gonna hear them in a moment or so there could be angry disagreements but their views are normally quite close joint review shared between two podcast brothers do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other not his own the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Stop talking now. Hey, 
one of the other 40 films Danny saw this week, and one, the one film I saw, <laughs> was uh, Swiss Army Man. So we've been looking forward to this one for a while. We first heard about it when it uh, premiered at some festival, and everyone was talking about Daniel Radcliffe's farting Bona Corpse movie. Obviously, that caught our attention, and not only um, is it about a farting corpse with a boner, but it also got pretty good reviews. So people were saying that it was an exciting film, and the it's a it's the feature debut by um, music video directors called Daniels, Daniel Kwan and Daniel something else. I don't have their names in front of me because I'm not a professional, just an idiot. <laughs> and uh, and their music, they have great music videos, and they also make very um, visually inventive. Uh, videos that have a lot of narrative to them and are quite sentimental and you can understand how they would want to make the leap into uh like long form fiction cinema and uh so yeah we're excited to see how it turns out basically the plot is paul dano is this young sad guy stranded on this island at the beginning of the film he's about to kill himself he sees a body on the beach it is daniel radcliffe as a corpse and the corpse begins to fart and the farts propel the corpse into the sea and Paul Dano rides Daniel Radcliffe's corpse like a jet ski farting onto a new shore. And then there, he sort of drags his corpse through the woods and gradually the corpse slowly starts to come to life and to uh, has various weird abilities and they start to um, like communicate more with one, one another and the corpse begins to talk. And here is a clip of uh, probably about halfway through the film when they are having conversations. The corpse is a sort of naive childlike thing is discovering the world for the first time um, and they are discussing farting one of the big topics of the film when i get back home i'm gonna show sarah how much i care about her every single day whenever she wants she's thirsty or whatever she can drink my spit and then she can ride my gas to wherever she wants to go you can't use your gas in front of other people what why not because it's weird people don't like other people's farts is that why you don't fart in front of me? No. I just like to do it alone or hold it in. That's what you're supposed to do. That's so sad. That's so sad. What are we even going back home for? It sounds like you're not allowed to do anything back there. Yes, See. quite. So there we go. Danny, what did you what did you think of that? I liked it very, very much. I thought it was really good. I found its audacious tonal mismatch uh, winning. I thought yeah. they got away with it. And uh, I like the sort of challenge the filmmakers set themselves to be like puerile and soulful at the same time. And for the most part, I think they got away with it. And it is like a really interesting watch because you're not quite sure how to process it as you're watching it. And the character Daniel Radcliffe plays Manny is like, is this guy real? Is he a hallucination? Uh, is it a big literalized metaphor or is it just part of uh, Hank, Paul Dano's character's psyche? And the answer is like all of these things at the same time. And the result is you're trying to work out how to watch it as you're watching it. And that sort of uh, weird experience makes it like a really enjoyable film to... Did you feel like you were watching it and trying to sort of second guess what the objective reality was that he was experiencing? Well, no, no not the whole way through, but just it's like operates by this very specific logic, yeah. sort of dream logic the movie establishes. And that itself, like, scene to scene, you wouldn't really know what would happen. Definitely, yeah. And it was constantly surprising. Yeah. Yeah, because um, the conceit that I didn't realize going into it is that uh, Manny, the corpse, has this um, naivety about him and he doesn't know anything. And they have these conversations um, about what the world is like. And 
you know um that was an element that i didn't realize i had to and it was just like an interesting kind of uh turn for it to go into in addition to have him having all of these like magical powers and stuff the thing that i that i really liked about the film i also really enjoyed it um but i think the thing that is so clever uh is the fact that it's not just that it's um that they're trying to do on the one hand fart gags and on the other hand a movie that touches you you know makes you laugh and cry and that kind of thing uh but that the um those two things are um central you know to they they inform each other like that's the whole point of it yeah that it's that it's trying to make you look at farting and boners in a different way and it's making this argument about how uh i think basically the message of the film is about how there's a natural human tendency to dislike yourself and to be very self-critical and to you know find the things that you do stupid and the movie is kind of encouraging people to embrace themselves a bit more uh, which is a very common you know believe in yourself kind of message for movies to do but i think it's doing it in a very interesting way which is to try to embrace the like everyday grossness of human bodies and normalize them um in uh this quite like audacious and visually inventive manner and i think that that's a very worthwhile project for um, a film to set out to do and i think it's very successful at doing it and you, there's a few sniffy reviews of it that are like um stop trying to be philosophical you stupid farty film but i think that it's like that's not even engaging with the subject matter i think if you just go to the film and you're like fart i farting is dumb i you know the, the end then you you might as well have not gone in, in the first place you're just reading the synopsis whereas you know i think the movie makes quite a good case that like farts and boners whatever are just like normal things that people do and you know and uh and that you you know you should like yourself and you should embrace every random aspect of the sort of shit that your body has you know and i thought that was cool and it's also just a structurally um very interesting film goes to interesting places and uh the sort of visual aspect of it is great it has this kind of homemade michelle gondry quality where Paul Dano's character is constantly building intricate stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, in a uh, sort of science of sleep type way. Um, and it looks really, really cool. And yeah. Yeah, it's great. And I think it's anchored entirely by these, like, the least vain performances ever. Yeah. By Paul Dano yeah. and Daniel Radcliffe. It's I mean, like a bit of theatre or something. You know? Yeah, it is a bit Brechtian at times, perhaps. Is that, is that too lofty a <laughs> thing? Like the sort of, you know, the kind of island's a bit kind of stage purgatory thing and he's like building props and stuff. Yeah, sure. There's a reading of that in the movie. I didn't make that up. But I think Paul Dano is always good, but it's a very smart bit of casting because to massively generalise, I feel the two characters he's asked to play a lot is the sort of shy, naive indie rom-com lead and the sort of uh, creepy guy. And... This character is like a kind of a mixture of both. It's like this got interesting shades of grey to him. And uh, Daniel Radcliffe, I've not seen any of his sort of... I always... I kind of like him as he's sort of... Uh, he's a real trier. It seems like post-Harry Potter, he's like really put himself out there in all these different roles. Well, none of which I've seen. Uh, so from my mind, he's like... He was like, okay, in Harry Potter, and he's suddenly become an incredible actor. Yeah, I was like, this is the best role. <laughs> this is by far the best thing I've ever seen Daniel Radcliffe do. And uh, yeah, his... Uh, job is like a corpse slowly coming to life but remaining a corpse who goes from like child to adult through puberty it's like amazing like the technical tightrope yeah. walk of it is really clever and yeah so like throws himself into it 
so committed. Yeah, it's pretty. It's nice. kind of like a revelation. So this is something else that was pointed out in a review that I read. How like there's so, there's such tactile performances, like they're constantly touching each other and like tugging each other's hair, and yeah, you're completely right to describe them as not at all vain because uh, they do all sorts of weird shit in the movie. <laughs> I mean, I think this might be something we've talked about again. How like there's just a um, inherent virtue in films that show you things that you haven't seen before. Yeah, you're absolutely. Seeing you're pitching, like, well, that's new, and this film is constantly throwing up stuff like that. And some of the thematic ground that it covers is very standard for um, these kinds sure. of life-affirming, affir- life low-budget, cute films. But it is done in a completely fresh way, which which I didn't feel, uh, for example, with Hunt for the Wilder People, which is another very um, lovable kind of homemade movie um, that is heartwarming, but uh, but did feel like it was sort of using tropes from other stuff right. more. Whereas this was like, um, it felt so much like this original vision i mean i was kind of watching it like i can't believe no one's thought of doing this fart film before (laughs) it just the concept of it makes such sense yeah yeah if i did have a complaint with the movie i think the ending didn't quite um land for me because i mean the reason is is because at the end it gives you a lot of information quite quickly which um puts what you've seen in a different context but at the same time it's sort of tying up the thematic journey of the movie mm. and i think one gets in the way of the other slightly yeah I but it's see what you mean yeah um but it's also the sort of thing which i think wouldn't bother me on a second viewing it's like once you know the story it's like you know the narrative uh tying up gets yeah. in the way of the thematic tying up slightly well i think it's kind of what you were saying about when you're wondering uh what the reality is outside of paul dana's own experience you know and yeah. that that's that kind of underlying question of the movie but it's also sort of the least interesting question like yeah. is it in his mind or not you know like that's not really what you care about i think and that um at the end of the movie they have to kind of deal with it because the movie has to end in some way yeah, yeah. and so uh yeah a lot of stuff happens that where you're like what is what exactly is real you know and like that's not really the question i wanted to be thinking yeah, about. yeah, yeah. so yeah it's true i wasn't completely sure what to make of the ending but i do think that that might just be because you need to watch it again, you know. Yeah, because a lot of stuff happens at the end, and it's like that's not the movie. Yeah, and that's probably the best compliment I can give it. Yeah, I, I can it. give it. <laughs> I personally can give this film. I say incredibly arrogantly, yeah. but it's like it's definitely a film I want to watch again in like a few months' time. You know, it's like yeah, there's so much to unpack in it that I feel it would re- re- reward repeat viewings. Yeah, completely. And I didn't, under, I mean, this maybe is bad reviewing, just citing other reviews, but there's the polarized nature of the reviews are bizarre to me because surely, purely on the level of like sheer invention is uh, amazing. Like, yeah, it's got great performances. It looks great. It's beautifully photographed and the, all the effects and stuff are incredibly well done. So what yeah, the hell? it's got all that going for it. Get it together. Yeah. Critic. I want to see a, say a final thing that I liked about it. Um, that I often find that with movies that are trying to make you feel good about yourself, that um, it can go a bit wrong. I mean, maybe it's just like my mood when I'm watching the film, but sometimes I feel like those movies, instead of putting myself in the shoes of the characters and when they get happy, you get happy. It's more like, you know, you're just watching these cool people have great lives and be awesome. And you're like, fuck you, you know, (laughs) that you end up bouncing off them. Sure. You know, they, the, the movie rewards their irritating lives with great success and happiness. And you're like, well, you know, la da good for you. You know, I'm still I, I miserable. I'm still miserable. I don't feel good about myself from this. This didn't help me, you know. And I think this film was really successful in, um, like, making a case for everyone to feel better about themselves and not simply trying to emotionally draw you along 
and identify with the character and then get happy when they get happy. Does that make sense? Yeah. Where it was like, there's this thematic argument for the movie that, you know, that people should love themselves, that it was, you know, that it did very effectively. So I think it's a genuinely a feel-good film. I agree. My favourite film stars Bridget Bardot. She's the queen and she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends and the terrorists try to stop her, but she beats them in the end. So, um... When I can't remember if it was Paul Dano or Daniel Radcliffe, but it was in some interview and they were being asked about this movie um, and about what first attracted it to them. And they said that the um, Daniels directors had uh, sold it to them as a film where the first fart makes you laugh and the last fart will make you cry, which I think is certainly borne out by uh, the movie. And if it's taught us one thing, it's that farting does not undercut drama. Not at all. And that something can be really powerful impactful and emotional um and that is really only heightened by extra farting absolutely and i'm gonna put this to the test i'm gonna yeah. do a live reading of no man is an island by john dunn beautiful poem i've been eating beans all day this might be moving and farty yep and after that after danny's done reading and farting uh that will be the end of the podcast and we will see you next week when we will be reviewing american honey American Honey. Honey Baby. Why, is that immediately on general release? That's out next Friday. Right, okay, cool. Yeah, maybe I'll see it myself. And, yeah, maybe Girl on a Train. Sure. We love girl films, don't we? We love girl films. Yeah. We love Emily Blunt. And we love Emily Blunt. We love her chicken noodle soup. (laughs) If you know what I'm saying. Yeah, so without further ado, um, Danny, who um, has been eating nothing but gas, um, and John (laughs) Dunn. Enjoy. No man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends, or of thine own were, any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. 
It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.